And hello, thank you so much for joining us. This is Ellen Kamai, the natural nurse. And as always, on behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Eugene Zamperone, we are wishing you the best, the best of health, the best of happiness as we move into a new season. Uh, we are very, very excited today because here in Florida, where I am, um, many, many Canadian friends are rushing back in. And when I say rushing, it's been two years just about since they've been able to, to be here. So that's a, an exciting movement forward uh, from here. So I'd like to invite you to some of our classes and workshops that Dr. Zamperone and I have regularly. And all you have to do is go to naturalnurse.com. While you're there, if you go to the lower left-hand corner, it says join our mailing list. And you just click on there. We don't ask for anything except your email. And then you will be getting our newsletters, which we do not send out very often. Usually, if you want to check on what's going on, you have to make a private appointment for, let's say, a private class. One that has been very busy is career paths in natural health. That's where people would like to move from whatever they are doing now to a natural focus in their personal life, of course, but in their professional life as well. And we have an entire class called Career Paths in Natural Health that will put you on that path. And before you know it, that is how you will be having an income, whether you're a health professional or a graphic design artist or anything that you might do, a retail person, anything that you might do, you can move into a natural career. We also have many classes that have CE credits. For instance, we have one coming up next week <laughs> that is called Sugar Blues, Botanicals for Glycemic Support. And that class tells you about, you know, what's going on with the glycemic index and the fact that people overcrave sugar and how to regulate that for yourself using herbs. Um, some very common herbs like cinnamon and some less common such as fenugreek and how to use them. But in addition, if you are an RN, an NP, an RD, a licensed massage therapist, or any other kind of medical professional, you can get three CE unit credits granted by the Florida Department of Education for taking the Sugar Blues course. Many of our classes do involve getting credit for taking them as well. Also, we have another class coming up uh, shortly thereafter, which is free. And that is going to be called, oh, the Hildegard Study Group. The Hildegard Study Group is coming up on um, next Monday, and it is completely free. Anyone can join in, and you will learn about Hildegard, who is a fabulous, fabulous um, nun and 
natural health care provider. Of course, when she was doing it in, in the year 1000, it wasn't called natural. It was just called healing. You know, that's all that was around. There were no pharmaceuticals. But yet there's an entire science involved with Hildegard's healing, with color therapy, gemstones, herbal medicine, food. Um, she was the first to advocate a wheat-free diet back in the year 1000. Extremely, extremely interesting person. And um, you would welcome to join us and it is totally free. Just go to naturalnurse.com and click on calendar and you'll see all these classes there. Another one in November, which is also free, is called Olive and Oregano, Delicious Nutritious Immune Support. And you can join us to learn all about the healing value and medicinal uh, applications of things, particularly olive, olive oil, and olive fruit and olive leaf extract. They've all been highly studied. They are evidence-based as well as oregano. And then we have a class coming up also on hemp, THC, CBD, and cannabis, and endocannabinoids. What's all the buzz? To learn all about the latest research in the field of cannabinous and cannabinoids and basically THC and hemp. You know, it's a big, big, big craze right now, but perhaps you'd want to know exactly what that's about. And then we have a class coming up also called Herbal Medicine, Herb Magic. And that's going to wrap up our classes for this year. But of course, we already have a huge and very busy schedule in the works for 2022, which we're coming right up to. So how to find all of those classes, most, most of which are free, you just go to naturalnurse.com calendar, and they are listed there along with sign-up links. So today, we are so happy to have as our guest the author of Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, and that is Dr. Erica Elliott. Dr. Elliott has been referred to as the health detective, and she draws from a wide range of disciplines, both highly trained in mainstream medicine as well as natural healing, and she uses those to diagnose and treat chronic illness. She has successfully treated people who do not respond, let's say, to conventional pharmaceutical drugs. And the range of things that she has been involved with are very wide, including chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, allergies, chemical sensitivities, and autoimmune diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis. So we're going to have a conversation today with Dr. Elliot, and we'll be talking about her approach utilizing integrative therapies. And you can find out more, and this will be a link on our webpage after our show today at ericaelliotmd.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Elliot. It's a pleasure, Ellen. Well, let's go back in time and explain to our audience what led you to become a physician in the first place? Okay, it was a long journey I took. It wasn't the classical go-to high school, college, and then medical school. Thankfully, I didn't take that route because if I did, I wouldn't really enter into medicine with much life experience. So 
how could I really treat patients when I hadn't really lived much of life myself? But I wasn't thinking in those terms. I was just thinking that when I was a little girl, I knew that my life had a purpose and I had no idea what that purpose was. And so, um, well, wait a minute, I'm going to stop you there. What made you think that that you had a purpose? Was that something they taught you in church or did you suddenly have that as a revelation? No, I, I didn't. I, I didn't learn that in church at all. <laughs> not not at all. I it was just something I looked around me and I said to myself, even as a young girl, I said, surely there's more to life than just being born and then doing a few things and going to school and stuff and 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 then you die. I thought, no, th- there's got to be something really um of significance and i need to find what it is i knew that as a girl but i didn't have words for it i was not articulate in those days uh, who is as a child i just had a feeling and that that feeling grew in me and grew and grew and grew um until in college, I, I went to a, an extremely progressive college, and I wasn't prepared for that. I had been in high school in Germany with very strict discipline. And wait a minute, wait a minute. How did you get to do high school in Germany? My father was um, a general in the army. He commanded okay. the forces in Frankfurt on Main. So I went to an international school, which was a really rigorous education. And I <clears throat> looked at the college catalogs and they all looked the same. I, I didn't know where to go, but I ran into these unusual students staying at youth hostels who were incredibly uh, knowledgeable about politics and social issues. I, I was just blown away. And they, they dressed really odd and, um, you know, it's sort of like gypsies. And they were all musical. They played an instrument. And I was just fascinated. And they told me they went to this school called Antioch College, where they'd get credit for um, every other semester being off campus, doing something that pursued what they thought their purpose in life was, um, and trying to combine real world jobs with academic education. So I, I thought this sounds like a good place for me to go to. But when I got there, I, I couldn't handle it. it. It was just way too far out for me. And uh, given that I had raised with so much discipline and so forth. And so I, I tried everything they had to offer being a curious person. And that included uh, LSD and uh, eating junk food and smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol and stuff. I wasn't cut out for for doing that, but I I just wanted to see what this was all about. And also another thing that set me adrift besides uh, those drugs is that you could take a test, multiple tests, and if you scored high enough, you wouldn't have requirements for that field. So I tested out of almost everything because I had such a good education in Europe. And so there I was adrift with, and they didn't even have grades. So I I was completely lost and had a breakdown. 
And I felt my life had absolutely no meaning at all. And I, I had no idea why I was on the planet. And that breakdown meant that I was forced to see a psychiatrist, which was incredibly humiliating for me because in those days, only psychotic people and schizophrenics and people in mental institutes saw psychiatrists. This was in the 60s. So, but it turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me. In fact, many of the quote bad things that happened to me led to incredible uh, openings, portals for reaching a higher level of my existence. And this was the major turning point for me because in those days, psychiatrists, they didn't just give drugs. They really listened like, like the way psychotherapists do nowadays. And he, um, he created like a sacred space for me. To, he listened to me for the first time in my life. I, I was listened to with no judgment, no harsh criticism. I, my mother was Swiss from the old school, very harsh, believed in hitting for the child's own good and all that stuff. So, so I had never been listened to like this before. And it was so therapeutic being heard and seen that I was able to solve most of my own problems just being in his presence. He was a black man trained in Zurich, the first black psychiatrist ever to, to graduate from Zurich. He was the college psychiatrist, and I'll be grateful for him the rest of my life. He's what turned me into a sentient human being. I found who I really was. And he agreed that I did have a purpose, a very important purpose. And um, and he helped me get on my path to, um, to start searching what that purpose was. And so I explored all sorts of fascinating things. And each path I took gave me a piece of information that helped me ultimately find that my purpose was medicine. And so the first step I did in my new freedom to be my true self and was to just follow my intuition. Instead of following a template, how I was supposed to be, I was now totally in tune with myself. And, and appreciated myself for the first time in my life. And because I could come to appreciate and have compassion for myself, I developed enormous love and compassion for other people. And <clears throat> so I saw when I graduated from Antioch, I saw an ad in a trade journal for a fourth grade teacher at a boarding school in Chinle, Arizona, in the middle of nowhere. And all the other um, positions for school teachers, I was trained in education. All the other positions seemed really of no interest to me for some reason. And this one drew me. And all my friends and family said, why in the world would you want to go out in the middle of nowhere in the Southwest and teach at a boarding school? They have really bad reputations for treating Native Americans brutally and uh, people die, children die there, and uh, they're not allowed to speak their language or their culture. And wh why in the world would you want to do a thing like that? And my answer was, I don't know. I can't tell you, but I know I have to do this. I, I know it probably doesn't make any sense. I, I, I had a finely tuned sense of intuition, thanks to the psychiatrist. 
And and so I drove out there and at first I thought, my God, I have made a big mistake. This this is like so desolate and it's a, just a desert. Well, where and about what where about were you? I was near Canyon de Chez. I didn't see the canyon. I would have discovered that it's one of the most beautiful places in the whole world. And but I just saw um, the outside. It was um, in Chinle, Arizona. Again, in the middle of nowhere, there was one dirt road going through town. And that was it. I, I mean, excuse me, one paved road. The rest was all dirt and very primitive. I felt like I was back in the 50s. It was people driving pickup trucks and cowboys and uh, Navajo cowboys and Waylon Jennings blaring from their trucks. She's a good hearted woman in love with her good time. And man, I, I mean, I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? My friends and family are right. I'm crazy to picking this place. But and, and the kids were so shy, they, they, they didn't look at me, they didn't interact with me. And they were in the fourth grade and didn't speak English. I thought, how in the world was that? Could that be? And the white teachers said to me, who are very bored and just waiting to retire, they're way older than me in their mid 50s. And in, in that era, I thought that was old. I was like 23. And they said, these kids just can't learn. And and, uh, and they, they had seemed to have no affection for them. We also had no orientation to Navajo culture. That, that seems criminal. I mean, to have somebody come and to teach students and they're not given any orientation. I knew nothing about Navajo culture. And I was completely lost. I called my father and I said, I think I made a really big mistake coming out here. The people don't talk to me. They all, when they talk, they all sound angry at each other. <laughs> I learned later that's that's because their language is so guttural. They they can be saying something very nice, and it sounds like they're mad. And so um, I said, I, I'm I'm going to go home. I, I I made a mistake. You were going to give up. I was going to give up, and he said. You've only been there a week. You, 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 you don't, that's not long enough to know a people or their culture or their land. Look, why don't you stay there three months? And if you're still unhappy, you come home and find a job in New England. I said, okay. And so then the very next day, my teacher aide, Donna Scott, who's very familiar with both worlds, the white world and the Navajo traditional world, because she was raised in both cultures. And because her father was a very famous code talker in World War II, Carl Gorman. What does that mean? Code, code talker is World War II. Um, they had codes and all the codes were broken by the Japanese and the Germans, except for one code. And that's the Navajo code. And it wasn't a code. It was their language. And the reason why it wasn't broken, I discovered, is because it's the hardest language in the whole world. And I, I was already multilingual, having been raised much of my life in Europe, and my mother was Swiss. But I had never encountered a language like this that was so hard. Like one vowel has about 15 different ways you can say it. And if you don't say it right, you're saying something completely different that could now, be. What, what, would, what would make it be one sound or another? Does that have to do with the meaning of the word? 
One okay, so let's say in English, the A, if you say A, it has two ways to say it. Um, the A and A. In you take that A in Navajo, there's there's many ways to say it. I'll give you an example, and this is a real life example of a mistake I made that was horrifying. I I I started to learn Navajo. My teacher aide felt so sorry for me seeing me struggle, and she could see I was different from the other white teachers. I really wanted to connect so badly with these students, and I was completely unsuccessful. So she 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 uh, took me aside and said, "You know, if if you could learn, I could teach you a little bit of Navajo, and and that would make a big difference because these children are used to white people." not treating them well. And that that would that would change everything. And she did start to teach me. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But I'll tell you about a terrible mistake I made by by this vowel thing. It's very much like Chinese and it's very tonal language, a lot of guttural and clicking sounds. So I was trying to say, come here, my relative, to a little boy. How you show friendship is you call somebody by a relational term because relations are everything in traditional Navajo culture. Your, your family, your clan is more important than anything. And so if you call somebody like my brother or uh, my father or my relative, that's, a, that's an endearment. That's a way to show friendship. And so I said to this little boy who was having trouble um, reading, I wanted to say, come here, my relative, and I'll help you with reading. And so I waited till the class had all left because there's something very sort of almost um, Asian about Navos in traditional Navos, I'm talking about 50 years ago, that they, they, are abhor public humiliation. And so I, I waited till everybody had gone. And then I I said to him, I said, Hakoshike. And he he gasped and ran out the room. And so I asked Donna, you know, what happened? And she said, what'd you say to him? And I said, Hakoshike, come here, my relative. And she said, don't ever say that again. I, I said, what did I say? She said, I can't tell you, it's too embarrassing. And so, and so I found out later, but let me tell you the audience, I'm gonna, there's, there's three words that sound exactly the same if you don't have a trained ear. One is my shoe, one is my relative, which I was trying to say, and one is come here and have sex with me. And so hako means come here, hako, so I said that right. And then my shoe is shike. My relative is shike. And have sex with me is shike. And I mean, that all at that point sounded all the same to me. And so I was so scared to talk Navo after that. But Donna encouraged me, my teacher aide, to keep talking. And the kids would not hold it against me if I made a lot of mistakes. But that was just happened to be a terrible mistake. That's funny because I've heard that happen with French. Um, where, <laughs> where somebody said to a taxi driver, like, voulez-vous se coucher avec moi? Which is also a song. 
But, you know, it happens. <laughs> These things happen when we're trying to reach out in another language. Yeah. Yeah. So so what happened was I after that first day when Donna saw how, how desperately I wanted to make contact, she taught me how to say come. Um, hello, my children, because again, you use relational terms to warm people up. My children. Uh, good morning, my children. My name is Miss Elliot. And what's your name and where do you come from? So I practiced that way into the night. And I, I had no idea if I was saying it right. But I tried and tried to make those very weird sounds. And that don't exist in English. So you can't really write it exactly like using English letters all the time. Because, again, you have to have some symbol that doesn't exist in English to express like different uh, weird sounds like the clicking and the glottal stops and so forth. And so the next day, I got up all my courage. Nobody was looking at me as usual. Their heads were, were down. And she explained to me that they do that because two reasons. Um, they're terribly shy because I'm a white person and they're so used to being treated badly by white people and judged. So, and the other is they're showing respect. So to look somebody right in the eye, unless they're your friend, is considered disrespectful and aggressive. And so, but I didn't know that at the time. And again, I had no orientation. I was as ignorant as they come, making total cultural blunders and so forth. Anyway, I walked in that day <clears throat> and I said, And I know I must have said it wrong, but everybody looked up all at once, the entire class. And they, they stared for a moment, and then one of the girls covered her mouth and started to laugh, and then the whole class burst out laughing, and that was the beginning of the most touching, deep love affair I had with the students. It was incredible what just that little gesture did. It changed everything. And at the end of the day, the most brave, bold boy in the class, Billy Begay, the one that spoke the most English, walked up to my desk and they couldn't say Elliot, that was too hard, or Miss Elliot, that was way too hard. So they called me Elliot, like E-L-L-T. So he said, Elliot, take me home. I said, what? And then Donna Scott said, he said, he, he wants you to take him home. And I, I said, take you home, Billy? And he said, oh, that means yes in Navo. Oh. And so I said, you mean this weekend? Oh. And then I turned to Don. I said, am I allowed to take check people out of the dormitory on the weekends? And she said, yes, you, no one does it, but you, you, you're, you're allowed to. Just the parents usually do it when they come into town. And so I, I said to Billy, so do you, do, you, do you want me to check you out this Saturday and take you to your family? Oh, so I said, okay, okay, I'll do that. And so I checked him out 
And we drove in my four-wheel drive back in the middle of nowhere, deep into Canyon de Chez. And it was the most beautiful place I'd ever seen in my life. And it was full of ancient ruins way up on the cliff of the cliff dwellers, the Anasazi people, the ancient ones. It had beautiful cottonwood trees. The colors of the rocks were spectacular. I, I, I was just blown away. And we went way back. No wonder they had to go to boarding schools because they lived in such remote areas. And the family spoke no English at all. And so I, I really started learning Navajo, even though it was so hard. And I was willing to make mistakes and have people laugh uproariously. And I discovered that contrary to the stereotypes we have of Native Americans, these Navajo people had a tremendous sense of humor. They loved to laugh, but it was different from our humor. It was more like when people made mistakes, that's what they thought was absolutely hilarious. So uh, they, they really enjoyed listening to me struggle speaking Navajo. Well, this is all, I just want to remind our listeners that you are listening to Dr. Erica Elliott, who is a medical doctor, and we're talking today about her book, and she's telling us stories from Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo People. So you're starting to tell us. I just want to have a little aside about these boarding schools, Dr. Elliott, because it seems that they've actually been in the news lately where they have found, you know, in Canada in particular, although this has happened also in Arizona and in the United States, where they have found that, you know, these boarding schools, it wasn't so much a service. It was more to take the Indian out of the children. And they were not necessarily offered through the goodness and granting of the government to go to these schools, but that it was actually enforced. And it was also, um, to teach them English and take them away from knowing their Navajo roots. Did you find that that was how, really how the setup was? Yes, absolutely. But our boarding school was an exception for two reasons. One, that phase of horror was starting to phase out of uh, stealing people, actually, from their families. I, I, I had a grandmother who, who told me a hideous story about uh, being stolen and uh, taken away. It was a horrible story, and she was raped and so forth in the boarding school. Hor what a nightmare. And but So we were at the end of that phase of horror, number one. Number two, the principal was a Black man who was very aware of discrimination. And there was only one case of violence in the school. It was an old teacher who was ready to retire and just waiting to retire so he could get his government pension and go back to Louisiana. And he took off his belt one time and hit Billy Begay. And, um, and the principal put an end to that immediately. But, and told me that he, he, he only had a few more months till he was going to retire. So he wasn't going to punish him, but he said he wasn't ever allowed to lay a hand on a student. So that, that black principal was really on the ball. And we, he befriended me, by the way, because I 
I didn't follow the Dick and Jane curriculum. I, I thought that was irrelevant to these kids. They couldn't relate to to that stuff. So I made my own curriculum. We take excursions and then they come back and write about it. And one thing I want to say is once they knew how much I cared about them, all of a sudden their English improved so fast. It was unbelievable because they wanted me so badly to learn about their lives, their grandparents, their sheep, the werewolves, all their culture, their land. They wanted me to know about it. And so they were so motivated to learn English that I, I'm going to tell you something that's really hard to believe, but it's true. And I have a, a newspaper clipping to prove it because I thought no one would ever believe this. They went from barely putting a sentence together, and some couldn't even do that, to three of them at the end of the year winning regional a regional speech contest. I mean, it shows you what love can do when you deliver something with love. It is totally transformative. It transformed me and it transformed them. And it was so powerful that in terms of learning about what my purpose was, I made note to myself, whatever I decide, end up deciding is my purpose. It has to include teaching. It has to include empowering whoever I'm teaching. And it has to be delivered with love. So I made a mental note. I wrote in my diary all that so that I, I knew I was on the right track. This Teaching the rest of my life wasn't what I was supposed to be doing but it was a profound life-changing experience for me and opened my eyes to, to so much. I learned so much from the Navajo people. Here, here's this white school teacher. There's none of this white savior business because they saved me. I didn't save them. They saved me. So, so no one could accuse me of being, quote, a white savior. <laughs> and, so, and because I know that's... Uh, a sensitive issue in these times. I, I, I really learned from my students so much. And by the way, so when I would take out a different student every weekend to go to their distant home. So by the end of the year, every student had taken um, a weekend with me to at their homes. And they would invite me to ceremonies that white people aren't allowed to go to. I saw things that white people never see. And uh, I, I saw miracles, miraculous healing <clears throat> through the, the traditional ceremonies and through the Native American church, which is the peyote church. And that is not traditional. That was borrowed by the Plains Indians. The Plains Indians, Lakota Sioux and so forth, when they were being slaughtered, they turned to um, their church using peyote mind-altering plant medicine, they called it, to survive the atrocities. It was just horrible what was happening to them. And they found comfort in using plant medicine and having formal ceremonies. These plants were not used for recreation. Like white people use peyote for recreation. That is condemned among practitioners of the Native American church. It's for spiritual purposes. It's for healing. And I, 
I was, quote, adopted by a family that belonged to the Native American church. And when I was still pretty new to the reservation and couldn't really speak much Navajo, maybe a couple sentences or so, they invited me to participate. It was against the law in that era for white people to engage in this kind of activity. And they told me I had to get rid of the white man's clothes and dress like in traditional clothing, which I did, and looked absolutely regal. I looked like I'm going to the prom with my hair tied up in a Navajo knot and a velvet blouse, satin skirt, concha belt, squash blossom necklace, I, I, turquoise on all over the place on my body. And um, so... I sat next to my uh, adoptive uh, mother, and she told me to call her Shema. That means my mother. And so it was all in Navajo, of course, and there was a lot of praying and singing and so forth. And the plant medicine went around in three forms, in the button, in the powder, and the tea. And I, I remember feeling like I had to vomit. It, it just, ugh. And my Shema, my Navajo mother, had told me ahead of time that when you vomit, it's from the evil leaving your body. And I, <laughs> I, I didn't want to know people to think I was evil, so I tried to suppress the vomit <laughs> and uh, did went, went to great lengths to try to avoid vomiting. I should have vomited, but... I, I didn't vomit. And, um, and then um, she, when the sacred tobacco went around, the custom was these were herbs that had gathered, been gathered on the San Francisco peaks, which sadly now is made into a ski area. But, um, and they were hand rolled. And what you do is you inhale, exhale, and then say a prayer. And it goes around the circle. Everybody does that. And when it came, when the, my grandma, my Navajo mother did it. And then she leaned over to me and in English, as she handed it to me, she said in English, pass it on. And I didn't pass it on for some reason. And I inhaled, exhaled, and I prayed in Navajo. And as I was praying, I was thinking, Oh my God, I'm praying in Navajo. This, this isn't real. This is, this is the plant medicines making me hallucinate and think that I'm doing this. But I thought, wow, this is more real than real life. But it's not possible. I can't possibly be praying in Navajo. And I, I thought those thoughts as I was praying in Navajo. And everybody was staring at me. And then I, I passed the, the sacred tobacco on. And the same thing happened with the water drum. You know, you sing, hey, nay, young, and so forth. And, and when my mother, Shema, uh, sang her song, she passed the water drum to me and she said, pass it on. And I did not pass it on. And I beat the water drum and I sang a peyote song I had never heard in my life. And again, I didn't speak really Navajo at that point. And I was singing a Navajo prayer song. And I kept thinking, wow, this must be really powerful peyote. 
because it feels so real. And at the end of the whole ceremony, by the time daylight came, the peyote, the plant medicine had all worn off. And we filed out of the tent and we kneeled down, touched the earth with our forehead. And then we fanned ourselves with our eagle feather fans. And then we filed into the cedar house next door where the, some of the women had stayed up all night making a feast, a brick break fast, a breakfast, breaking fast, because we had fasted all night. We sat on the sheet on the floor, all gathered around the mutton stew and fry bread and the canned peaches and so forth. And the road man, which is what they call the medicine man who run the peyote ceremonies, he started talking to me nonstop in Navajo. And, I, I, and he's looking right at me, right at me. And I was so uncomfortable because... I didn't know what, why he was doing that and what, what he, and I finally said, um, uh, you, you, you know, I, I don't speak Navajo and everybody burst out laughing and they, and the medicine man said, you sure talked up a storm last night. Well, that's a, that is a great story. You know, we do have to go to a break right here, Dr. Elliot. Okay. And I want to remind our listeners that you are listening to The Natural Nurse and Dr. Z right here on Progressive Radio Network. And we are listening to beautiful stories from our own guest, Dr. Eric, Erica Elliott, MD, from a book that she wrote about these. I don't know if these exact stories are in the book, but lots and lots of very intense adventures. And you have... Um, reviews on that book from extremely famous people, including Joan Borinsenko and also um, Larry Dossi. Yeah, and also Larry Dossi, who has been a guest on my show, as Joan has been as well. So it's wonderful that you're sharing these with us today. The name of her book is Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, Dr. Elliot's Life Among the Navajo People. And we are hearing about it right from our guest, Dr. Erica Elliott. So we will be right back with more after the break right here on Progressive Radio Network. On this edition of the Natural Medicine Chest, we'll explore the medicinal properties of the plants of the ephedra genera, focusing on the traditional Chinese ephedra, also known as mahuang. Many species of the plant ephedra are used today in medicine throughout the world. The most medicinal of these are Ephedra sinica, or Chinese mahuang, and Ephedra nevadensis, also known as Mormon tea. Most of the research on Ephedra has been performed on mahuang, whose stems and branches have been used as a traditional Chinese medicine for over 5,000 years in the treatment of asthma, hay fever, bronchitis, as well as the common cold. Ephedra species are erect evergreen shrubs which grow in segmented bamboo-like joints reminiscent of straw ending in thin wisps. They typically are desert plants preferring arid conditions on dry rocky and sandy slopes. The Chinese ephedra, mahuang, has earned an impressive reputation as a source of the alkaloid chemical called ephedrine. In the West, scientists became interested in the medicinal usage of mahuang after they isolated ephedrine and pseudoephedrine in 1923. Today, synthetic derivatives have become widely used in prescription and over-the-counter medications. In 1993, over 40 million prescriptions in the U.S. contained these alkaloids. 
Ephedra and its relatives are considered to act pharmacologically as sympathomimetic compounds. This means that they stimulate the sympathetic part of our central nervous system, responsible for the release of adrenaline, which leads to the fight or flight response. Ephedra also affects the cardiovascular system by increasing the blood pressure and causes a relaxation and dilation of the bronchial smooth muscles in asthmatics. Ephedra can shrink the swelling of the delicate mucous membranes which line the respiratory system, thus drying up watery discharges, unstuffing clogged nasal and sinus passages, which accompany colds, sinus conditions, and allergies. In both animal and human studies, mahuang has been shown to accelerate weight loss. It has been shown not only to suppress appetite, but to increase the metabolic activity of the adipose or fat tissue. Therefore, ephedra's weight-reducing effects are most significant in individuals who have a low metabolic rate or a sluggish thyroid gland. Mahuang is a powerful herb which, when abused, can cause some unwanted side effects. Ephedra should not be taken by those with high blood pressure, nervousness or anxiety, insomnia, cardiac conditions, or pregnancy. Studies indicate that when used in conjunction with other Chinese herbs in a traditional formula, Ma Huang does not have any of these effects and has remarkable beneficial effects on human health. We recommend consulting a healthcare practitioner knowledgeable in the use of botanical medicine before using Ma Huang so you can be further educated about its totality of effects. And before using herbal preparations with mahuang, check to see if you are sensitive to its effects by starting with the minimal dose and working up to a therapeutic dose. Logically, since ephedra is a stimulant itself, it should be used prudently with other stimulants, beverages, or drugs with stimulant effects. Again, consult with your natural healthcare practitioner. So listeners, remember mahuang, the traditional Chinese ephedra, and make sure to include it in your natural medicine chest. And welcome back once more to the natural nurse and Dr. Z. And we're here talking today with Dr. Erica Elliott. And Dr. Elliott, I'm not sure we got to the part where you also went to medical school and became a physician. Oh, okay. Should I tell you about that? <laughs> yeah. So let's bring oh. that in because we definitely want to get to your lovely blog, Musing, Memoir, and Medicine, because you shared with us last time, you're not actively practicing medicine, but you have this huge um, library full of really helpful tips for people who want to use natural. Okay, I actually am practicing medicine. I'm a full-time doctor, but now I've, I'm no longer a primary care a physician. I'm a consultant, but I haven't been able to take new patients for five years. Right, that's because, what I mean. <laughs> yeah, so yeah because I'm so busy. So as a public service, what I've done is um, have this blog post, and among all the excerpts from memoirs are medical posts that are really useful to patients who can't see me because you'll learn stuff that you don't learn from mainstream medicine at all. It's not addressed or it's misconstrued or it's very drug oriented. So if you go on my website, Musings Memoir Medicine, and you click under medical blog posts exclusively, I think you'll find things there that you might not find anywhere else that are really practical easy to understand, useful, 
and will help you remain healthy. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing that you share. So yeah, so you're on the reservation, you were discovering both yourself, your ability as an excellent teacher, you're delving deeply into a whole new culture, which is fascinating to you. And you're very supportive to the students by reaching out to them, trying to learn their language instead of just enforcing this, you know, you've got to learn English thing, which seems to be a, a large part of those boarding schools. And let's go back in time, because how many years ago was this? That was 50 years ago. So now are those schools still there? No, right? No, 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 they're not because now it they're being torn down because of the horrible legacy, even though ours was very progressive. And by the way, my classroom was chosen as to be one of the first pilot programs for bilingual bicultural education. My, the black, superintendent told the government uh, that they should look into my classroom and the BBC even came and filled my classroom because it was so unusual what I was doing. And, um, but anyway, moving on to how I got a doc- became a doctor again, mm-hmm. my search was what am I supposed to be doing? So I had a big idea that it include uh, what I mentioned before, but now I needed to know more of the pieces and I was very attractive to indigenous people. I joined the Peace Corps. And again, I discovered that um, I, I, I was very interested in other cultures and people who are different from me. And, and that's always a theme uh, is to I learned how to see the world through other people's eyes, which helped me ultimately be a better doctor see the world through my patient's eyes. And people started bringing me their sick babies. And I was not a doctor. And they asked me to heal them. And I, I, I thought, wow, why are they doing this? And I think it's because they had not been exposed to white people where I was. I was at 12,000 feet high in the Andes working with Quechua-speaking Indians developing bilingual, bi-educational materials to help the children learn Spanish so they could get jobs. And so they would bring me their sick babies, and I I had no idea. And I kept saying, no soy doctora, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a doctor. They didn't care. And they said they just kept standing there with their sick babies. I, 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 I didn't know what to do. So I went into my Peace Corps first aid kit got out an aspirin, crushed it into little, just powder. And I, I, they spoke a tiny bit of Spanish, especially Catholic related, because priests tried to convert them to Catholicism, So they knew a tiny bit of thing. So I did something outrageous. I, I put on these, sick, these three sick babies who obviously had fevers. They faces were red. They're fussy. I put a tiny drop of aspirin powder. I mean, like one grain. And then (laughs) this is shocking what I'm about to say. I made, I'm not Catholic. I made the sign of the cross and I said a prayer in Spanish, which uh, they probably didn't understand. And I did that to all the babies. And they, they were very happy. The mothers, they went home and I thought, Oh my God, I've committed blasphemy. Probably I'll go to hell for what I did, but I didn't know what else to do. The next day, 
the three mothers came with guinea pigs that they're so poor, they only eat their guinea pigs for marriages and special occasions. So this is huge. A cooked guinea pig with a stick from its anus to its mouth. Oh, oh my God, it just made me sick thinking about it. But that was their big present to me. Thank you. And they said in their broken Spanish, half Quechua, half Spanish, that their their children were cured. And I, I, I just thought, that's not possible. That It was years later I learned about the placebo effect. But I was so intrigued by that that it made a profound impression on me. And, and also I noted what joy I felt to see people get better, even if I didn't know how that happened, to think that I might have done something uh, unknown to me what I did, but, um, but that they got better. So I, I just love that feeling, uh, helping people become themselves, be themselves, feel better. So I made note of that. Whatever I chose, it had to include that. And so anyway, um, I had, I come from three generations of doctors in Switzerland. So you might think, why, why didn't I realize my calling immediately? Well, the reason why I didn't is because I have an uncle in Switzerland who is a true genius. He's now dead. He was 50 years ahead of his time. He left mainstream medicine and people came from all over the world to see him. And, and he cured them from death sentences, from terminal cancer and so forth. And I, I was so blown away. I thought I could never be a doctor because you have to be a genius. Then when I was in Boulder getting my master's degree in experiential education, because I, I thought that's what I'm supposed to be doing, teaching children in the wilderness and uh, how, how to um, feel better about themselves, taking juvenile delinquents out there. I decided to take some of the courses that I tested out of in college, like advanced placement, biology, and so forth. And everybody in that class were pre-med students. And then I had an epiphany. These students were not geniuses. They were ordinary people at a good memory. They could spit back things. They, they, they didn't even have critical thinking. They didn't say, why is this true? And how does, and I thought, my God, if they, if there are future doctors, I can do it. And so I, that was a revelation. And that's when I went forward and I got into uh, medical school against all odds. I had everything against me. I was considered too old in that era, <laughs> too old. I, I mean, 29 when I applied, which would mean I had 31. That's not, too, but in that era, it was too old. I had no money because I was in the Peace Corps, no way to pay for my education. I was a woman, which in that era was more difficult. And I, I didn't have uh, any experience working in hospitals or a volunteer or and mostly I had a liberal arts education, but I ended up getting in against all odds and having it all paid for and everything. And I was in mainstream medicine for 10 years and it dawned on me, this is not what I spent my life looking for, giving out pills. In fact, the word for doctor, white doctor in Navajo is a which means he who gives out pills. I left mainstream medicine 
And it was the best thing I ever could have done. And that's when I truly found my real purpose in life, which is addressing the underlying causes of why people feel bad, not just throwing pills at them, having a relationship with my patients. And yes, loving my patients, which we were taught not to do that in med school. Do not get attached to your patients. I I broke all the rules. I became very caring of my patients. Their well-being was terribly important for me. And I used every um, skill I had to help them feel better. And it, it became the most meaningful, fulfilling thing. That's why at 73, I have no desire to retire. I just love what I do. And it was worth waiting all those years. I've been practicing this way since 1993. And I love what I do. People came from all over the country because their doctors couldn't help them. And it was thrilling to me to figure out what was wrong with them. It was intellectually thrilling. It was emotionally thrilling. It was spiritually thrilling to, and, and to empower my patients so they knew about their own bodies. I can't tell you how exciting my life is helping patients. Well, I, I can imagine since I do the same, and it really is. That's why so many people get into being um, medicine to begin with, be they nurses or doctors, because they want to help people. But then when the only path forward is giving nothing but pharmaceutical drugs, which so often may cover a symptom, but rarely or never lead to a cure, but only more complications and more uh, horrific symptoms, you go, this is not the right path. But when you start to do natural medicine, but bringing in real science, because natural medicine is evidence-based best medicine, that is the correct first intervention. And then we can save pharmaceuticals and surgery. They can be very useful for limited periods of time when all else fails, but should not be the first line of defense. And now you've been doing this so long that you know, that's what you see in PubMed. That's what you see in all the medical journals, that natural remedy has a much better and safer um, course forward and should be what is done in every single situation first. Yes, I agree. Totally. We look at foods, we look at homeopathics, herbal medicine, exercise, yeah. stress reduction, prayer, color therapy, music therapy, all yeah. of which is part of those indigenous cultures as yeah. well. So we see that is the human proclivity towards healing. And pharmaceutical drugs are a part of it, a large, logical and wonderful extension to be used sparingly when all else fails. Right. We're on the same page totally. Uh, obviously. Uh, it, it's so rewarding. Well, thank you for all your sharing. We actually have to end our show for today, but thank you so much for being our guest, Dr. Erica Elliott, medical doctor. And you can look at her wonderful blog, Musings, Memory, Memoirs, and medicine.com. And also look for that book. It has wonderful stories, some of which she shared with us, Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. 
Ellen. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And until next time, this is Ellen Kamai. Find us at naturalnurse.com. For myself and my co-host, Dr. Eugene Samperone, we hope that you stay healthy.